If you open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 16, our study tonight will be uh, the whole chapter, and it will be it will have moments of particular relevance uh, for the deacons who are being ordained and installed tonight. We continue our studies in 2 Chronicles tonight, studying the 16th chapter. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus saying, There is a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending to you silver and gold. Go, break your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, and they conquered Ion, Dan, Abomayam, and all the store cities of Naphtali. And when Basha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and let his work cease. Then King Asa took all Judah and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Basha had been building and with them he built Geba and Mizpah. At that time Hanani the seer came to Asa king of Judah and said to him, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa afflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. The acts of Asa from first to last are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet, and his disease became severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. And Asa slept with his fathers, dying in the 41st year of his reign. And they buried him in the tomb that he had cut for himself in the city of David. They laid him on a bier that had been filled with various kinds of spices performed by the perfumer's art. And they made a very great fire in his honor. May God be praised through the reading and hearing of his holy word. And Father, we thank you for these ancient records by which you teach us today. It is you who recount this event to us and speak to us through the words of this passage, Father calls us to be, to be strengthened in our faith, to be warned against our follies. And Father, we thank you of the great King we have in Jesus who will never fail. We pray in his name, amen. And the Bible not only does not promise that godly people will live free from trials, but instead it shows that often the case is that our successes will be followed by new challenges. An example of this is seen in the experience of Judas king Asa. Second uh, Chronicles 14 shows how he trusted the Lord. When we read it, there's an account of a battle that's recorded in chapter 14. A mass force, a million Ethiopians and Libyans. There's no way he could handle it, but he trusted the Lord, and the Lord handled the problem and gave him a great victory. And then in chapter 15, we saw his reformation, particularly of the worship, according to the word of God, of Judah going so far even to depose his own grandmother because of her idolatry. Well, perhaps to our surprise, Asa's faithful trust in the Lord leads directly to a new trial, this time in the form of a menacing advance from Basha, king of Israel. Asa's situation reminds us that God has a number of purposes when he sends us trials. When troubles come, we sometimes assume that the Lord is disciplining us. He's chastising us for failures or compromises. And the book of Chronicles shows that he does that at times. 
But there are other times when trials come as a test of our faith. Chapter 16 presents this situation. We might think that Asa, he knows how to trust the Lord. He doesn't need his faith to be tested. In fact, he had the benefit of faithful teaching, which, by the way, he himself had arranged for. He had prior personal examples, particularly the great battle where God gave him the victory. He knew how faithful the Lord is. Surely his faith was firm. And yet he will fail the test here, bringing serious consequences to himself and the nation. Asa will die a believer, and he will go down in biblical history as one of the champion kings of Judah. And yet his failure to rely on the Lord reminds us of why Paul urged us, keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. 1 Timothy 4, 16. Now the dating of the events recorded in this chapter presents some problems that actually influence our interpretation. Look at verse 1, the chronicler writes, In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem is that 1 Kings 15.33 tells us that Basha died during the 27th year of Asa's reign. He was succeeded by Omri. Therefore, he would not be there for the 36th year of Asa's reign. And because of this apparent discrepancy, critics of the Bible delight in these things. Delight to show, see, the Bible has errors. There's an error. It shows the Bible is not authoritative. It's not inerrant. We should always be careful to draw such a conclusion in light of the Bible's teaching. We were studying this morning that the word of God is sure. And Jesus said the word of God will never fail. Andrew Stewart writes, even when modern scholars cannot give clear explanations to these problems, we should never make the assumption that the Bible is simply wrong. Moreover, there often is an explanation for a so-called discrepancies. In fact, this is a passage where it's really not that hard to explain it. Explain it. How can it be that he's not in error when he says in the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Basha did something when he'd been dead for at least nine years? Well, the answer is found in the Hebrew word Malkut, that's translated here the reign of Asa, but is often used for the kingdom. And so he's not here referring, it seems, to the personal reign of Asa, but to the number of years it has been in the kingdom over which he was king. And guess how many years it has been since the southern kingdom began when these events take place. It has been 36 years. You can do the counting from the time when Rehoboam lost the northern tribes. It is the 36th year of the southern kingdom. Now, we have to admit that is an unusual way even by his own standards, for the chronicle to, to give this dating, but it certainly resolves the so-called error. Now, here's the thing. If the crisis with Basha had occurred in the 36th year of Asa's reign, he reigned 41 years, we would interpret this way, even though you are old, even in your old age, you may have tests of your faith, so don't become unwary. Now, there are plenty of examples of that. And the fact that you are merely aged does not mean that you can stop watching over your life. That would be the application. But it seems better here to date these events occurring just after the events of chapters 14 and 15, which are in the sixth, this would be then the 16th year of Asa's reign. And here the point is that shortly after his success, he faced a trial and how often it occurs that success is even a greater stumbling block than difficulty and defeat. We must be on our guard when we are walking down the mountain how often we will stumble on that slope. Asa's trial warns us not to make yesterday's faithfulness an excuse for today's laxity. Now the chronicler tells us that Asa's trial occurred this way, that Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah that he might permit no one to go out or to come in to Asa, king of Judah, verse 1. Now Ramah is located just north of Jerusalem along the main trunk road, and so by building a fortress there, Basha is able to cut off one of Judah's main trade routes. 
He's also able to put a stopper on the problem that he's had that all the godly people of his area are migrating to Judah. Why? Because that's where the house of David is. That's where the temple is. That's where true worship. And all all the Levites are already gone. And we've been told all the godly are leaving. He wants to put a stop to that. He's got a fortress on the border. No one can go in. No one can come out. He can influence the trade and the economy of his rival, King Asa. Now, this prompted, of course, a political military crisis that Asa simply could not fail to challenge. Now, students of international relations will look on Asa's handling of this situation as a model, maybe even a masterpiece of diplomatic maneuver. We might expect Asa to marshal his army and to launch an attack against Basha's fortress that probably would involve high casualties. Uh, Charging fortifications is not the height of military genius. It It might indeed lead to failure, but that's not what he does. Instead, he sends an envoy to Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. Now, you have to understand that while Israel is north of Judah, Syria is north of Israel, and so it's on the other border. That's what he does, and he wants Ben-Hadad to break his treaty with Basha and sign a new treaty with Asa and Judah. Now, admittedly, this was a costly strategy. But it would also be costly to marshal your army and deploy it. That's a lot of provisions you have to make. That's very expensive. This is expensive. Moreover, he was able to get the gold and silver pretty easily by taking it, we are told, from the treasures of the house of the Lord. Verse 2. That's where he got his gold, also with treasures from his own storehouse. Now, perhaps Asa reasoned that the faithful people of Judah would in due time replenish the treasury's temple through their regular offerings. And so he writes to Ben-Hadad in verse 3, There is a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending to you silver and gold. Go, break your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. Now this strategy was an immediate success. We read of it in verse 4. Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa. He sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel. They can't conquer Ion, Dan, Ebal-Mayim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. And so there's a sneak attack from the people he thought he, he had paid them off, undoubtedly. So that's why Asa had to pay so much. It's, it's expensive to outbid someone. But the very people he'd paid off are now attacking him in the rear. And you get a sense of a panic here. We read in verse 5, when Basha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah. He let his work cease. So he can no longer build his fortress on the border of Judah. His own boundary area was being plundered. In fact, Asa is able then, after they're gone, how much they would have enjoyed this, to go up and take all the building materials, and they used it to build their own forts at Geba and Mizpah, verse 6. What a success! Without shedding a drop of his people's blood, without even mustering his army, he removed this threat to his nation and he put his enemy in a conundrum. What could there be to criticize his stratagem? Well, let me suggest two ways in which his stratagem is to be criticized. The first is that Asa's Asa's actions had been unprincipled for a believer in the God of Israel. They were unprincipled things that he had done. While achieving this diplomatic coup with all of its benefits, he had in fact failed the test of his faith. Now, how is it that he acted without principle? Well, two ways. First, by taking the silver and gold that he used to bribe the Syrian king from the storehouses of the temple of the Lord. Now, the problem is that these funds were not his to take. They were not his to use for his own purposes, no, not even as Judah's king. What was the purpose of the, of the wealth in the, in the storehouses of the temple? It was to provide for the worship and praise of the living God. It was to provide for the ministry of God's grace in the worship of his people. That's what those tithes and offerings had been given to. They belonged to the Lord. They were to be used for the Lord's service. 
It's a reminder to those being installed as deacons. Deacons, one of the things they do is they watch over the gathering of funds and those things, and together with the elders, make decisions about that. The monies that are given by the tithes and offerings of the people of the church are to be used for the worship of the Lord, for the ministry of the word, for the spread of the gospel. These are the things that we are attend to. Now, something similar to what Asa did then might occur today when church leaders take in money that was given to the Lord to purchase political advertisements or perhaps to engage in real estate speculation. Now, those actions might be justified by pressing political or material needs, but what they're doing then is they are taking what is not theirs and what is given for the Lord's work. Again, the worship of God, the praise of God in the church, the the ministry of the word and the means of grace, the shepherding of the people, the spread of the gospel. The Bible ascribes these things as the purpose of the giving of our tithes and offerings, and this would be using them for worldly purposes instead. Now, there's a second way in which Asa was unprincipled. Notice that he is paying a pagan king to make war against a nation that however compromised and unfaithful, nonetheless is part of God's people. I hope you noticed when we were reading, I read them fairly quickly, but some of those place names that uh, were overrun by Assyria, Naphtali, Ion, you should be going, I I think those are in the promised land. They are in the promised land. That's the land that God gave for his covenant people. It is utterly unprincipled for Asa to fund a pagan occupation of land given by God to his people in a way that is a short-sighted violation of God's revealed purpose. Now, Asa's actions were not only unprincipled, that's probably the first problem that comes to mind, but secondly, they were dishonorable. Notice again the language that he uses in his bribe to Syria's king. Go, by the way, here are words that should never fall from our lips. Go, break your covenant. That's what he says. Go, break your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, verse 3. Ralph Davis comments, the Bible does not smile on broken covenants. Indeed, it does not. Even a covenant oath to a pagan king should be kept. Now, we'll see that principle reinforced throughout the Bible. For instance, later on, God will chastise Judah's king Zedekiah because he violates a covenant he had made with the king of Babylon. And we might say, well, well, so what? It's the king of Babylon. He's the bad guy. And it's actually a good move to break that covenant. No, 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 no. Don't be breaking your covenants, God said, particularly when they involve oaths before the Lord. He later judges uh, Egypt for breaking its word with Egypt, with Israel. You'll see these in Ezekiel 17, 11 to 21, and Ezekiel 29, 6 to 9. Christians are to keep their word and especially to honor covenant oaths. Now let me give you one example. There could be many. This means, for instance, that a Christian student who pledges to refrain from alcohol at a Christian college should keep that pledge even if he or she considers it to be an unbiblical restriction. If you make the pledge and if you enter into that bond, you should keep it. We could give any number of other examples. We are to keep our covenants. Well, Asa's failure provides a lesson to church leaders today, and here's where I would direct myself to our new deacons, but by all means, not only to them. We live in a world where pragmatism rules. And no doubt secular history would applaud this shrewd stratagem of Asa. But believers are never to think that good ends justify ungodly means. Let me say that again. That's what's going on here. Believers are never to think that good ends justify ungodly means. To do that is to betray our faith in the Lord. In short, when Christians are doing God's work, we must do it in God's way. That means according to his word. Uh, Notice, though, that uh, I think it's interesting, 
There's no word of Asa praying about this difficulty. It's pretty true in all the historical books. It's very true in First and Second Samuel about David, but we'll see it in the Chronicles as well. You can pretty much chart whether it's going up or down by whether the king does one of two things. Does he pray and does he consult God's word? I mean, we know he's got a prophet there. He might have summoned him beforehand, Anani the seer. He's got the five books of Moses at least, probably more than that. But there's no mention of him turning to the Lord in prayer. And here's what prayer, let me commend our deacons as well as our elders. Here's what prayer will do when we find ourselves tested in our faith. We, we don't, we, we're not sure what we're going, going to do is working. We're not sure that doing things the right way is going to be effective. And, and we're tempted to do the right thing in the wrong way or with the wrong attitude. We go to the Lord in prayer and the very act of coming before the Lord in prayer reminds us of the character of God. This is the the part of the value of prayer in Christian leadership. It restrains us from taking unbiblical practices. We we start justifying what we've... I I confess to having had instances where I'm justifying to God and I just have to stop in the middle of my prayer and go, let me just go back and pray and repent of even thinking of that and I'm going to let me do it your way. Prayer is a key resource to those who would serve the Lord, particularly those who bear authority uh, in the church, a key resource for passing the test of faith, for being conformed to the methods that God gives. And so also is, of course, the word of God. He did not consult God's word in any way. What did he do? Well, instead, by consulting his own cunning, and we, I don't think it's going too far to suggest that the prior successes may have made him overconfident. He failed to realize that all of his successes were by God's grace. And he needed the word of the Lord, but he, he didn't consult that. It's his own cunning, casting aside biblical principle in order to make the problem go away. That's what he wants. He wants to make the problem go away. And so he achieves worldly success that is disapproved by the Lord. You know, many times people will quote the phrase, and if you want to make an omelet, you've got to be willing to break a few eggs. But the question we need to ask is, which eggs are we talking about and who do they belong to? Uh, I suppose there's a proper use of that saying. But let's be careful about the eggs we are breaking. Let it not be the commandments and the precepts of the word of God. Let it not be those things that are precious to the Lord himself. Now often we'll find ourselves in a situation where we are unable to do worldly wise stratagems, but we don't know how we can be successful. You think of our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church in China. I don't have a good solution for the person. They're being pers- I don't have a, a way for them to get out of it. I think, I think of worldly ways to do it, the wrong way to try and do the right thing. But I have no godly way to avoid the persecution. What do we do? It's not just persecution, but in other situations where there is nothing before us, no lever that we can pull in a godly way that, will, that it seems will give the right result. Well, the answer is we must commit ourselves to prayer prayerful reliance upon the Lord. We must trust the Lord and pray. And that, by the way, is the very approach that will enable us to pass the tests of faith that God gives to us. Uh, We obey God's word, we trust him, we pray for his help. How often do we find the prophets saying, how long, O Lord, we will wait upon you, O Lord. Well, we might be tempted to justify what Asa did on the grounds that Judah actually benefited from it. But did they? Was this really a success? Are we strengthened? Are we enriched when we have the favor of the world and the benefits of the world, but we're under the discipline of God? That is not success. You see, the believer realizes that in any situation, the most important factor is always the true and living God. It is always God with whom we have to do. He is always the chief and decisive factor in every situation, both in principle and in action. Wasn't this a lesson Asa was taught in chapter 14 when it was God alone who allowed him to defeat this massive army from the south? Likewise, today, a Christian student who's tempted to cheat on a test 
will do better both in principle and practically in the long run by prayerfully trusting God, doing his or her best for the simple reason that God blesses. It's going to be the message of the prophet. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the world and he will give strong support to those those whose hearts are committed to him. What about a Christian leader, a deacon, or a pastor who's unfairly criticized, sometimes who is slandered? We see in that situation we do better, both in principle and in practice, to respond in a godly way rather than with anger and venom in response. You see, for the Christian, the honor and will of God should always be the determining consideration in any action. In principle, yes, absolutely, because it's an act of worship to him when we do it. It's relying on the Lord. It is a test of our faith. But as we see over and over in the Bible, including this chapter, it works out best as well. The prophet will say to Asaph, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Now, we begin by noting that trials may often be tests of our faith rather than judgments from God. That's true of the opening section of this chapter. However, when Asa fails the test, the second kind of trial is announced. This time, it is chastisement for his unprincipled and dishonorable response. And we see this through this little-known prophet, Hanani the seer. And he comes to Asa, king of Judah, with a rebuke from the Lord. And through God's word, Asa discovers that his stratagem has produced, yes, on the one hand, this great worldly success, but it has replaced it with a problem with the holy God. Just what was the problem? Hanani answers in verse 7, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God. In other words, we discover Here, the Bible's counsel. Here's the Bible's counsel to those who are faced with onerous tasks, and that will be all of us. What should we do when a professor doesn't seem to be grading fairly, or when a boss doesn't recognize our achievements, or when a neighboring king erects a blockade on our northern border? What do we do? Well, whatever solution we decide on, it should reflect in a tangible way a reliance upon the true and living God who's revealed himself in the world, not a reliance on our own cunning and strength or that of the world. You know, a great part of our Christian growth takes the form of learning to rely on the Lord. The Apostle Paul says, and you hear this over and over in the New Testament, he says in Galatians, the only thing that really counts is faith expressing itself through love. And I've often said there's really two things going on in my life. I'm learning how to love other people, and I'm learning to trust the Lord. And people go, you're actually pretty old now, and you've actually been a Christian for a while. Haven't you learned to trust the Lord? And the answer is, well, I'm working on it, or actually, the Lord is working on me. Those are the things that really matter. Are we learning? That's what matters. It's not how high we get up on the rung, what kind of car we drive, all of those things. It's to have we learned to love. All that matters, Paul says, is faith expressing itself through love. Have, are you learning what it is to, to love like Christ does? Are you learning to rely upon the Lord? This is what's going on over and over. It is central to our Christian lives. And that's why we should be inculcating from the earliest days into the minds and hearts of our children the many stories of the Bible, for instance, Uh, not to mention memory verses like verse 9 in our chapter tonight, but the stories of the Bible, the point of which is that the people of God can rely upon the Lord. There should never be a Christian who, who can't tell you with great joy what happened at the Red Sea when Moses was there and the the Israelites had their backs up against the water and Pharaoh's bearing down on them with chariots. What what will they do? Well, they prayed, Moses prayed at least, and God parted the seas of the Red Sea waters to allow his people to pass through the great redemptive event of the Old Testament. What is its point? You may rely on God. He will not fail you. He will make a way. Our children should delight to tell the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they said to mighty Nebuchadnezzar, 
We're not going to bow down to your idol because we don't do the idolatry thing. We know the true and living God. And and Nebuchadnezzar says, well, you're going to pay a price for that because you see that fire I've stoked up. You're going to go into it. In fact, it's so burning that even to be near it would cause you to burn. You know the story. And we love the words of, I think it was Shadrach. One of the youths can correct me if I'm wrong. Who says to Nebuchadnezzar, we, we believe our God will deliver us, but even if he chooses not to, we will not bow down to your idol. So into the fires they go, and out of the fire they come. They were not, not even their hairs were singed, not even their clothes were burned. And what did Nebuchadnezzar say? There was a fourth man among them, one like a son of the gods. Jesus Christ will be with you. The whole message of the Bible is designed. All these stories, we need to know them. We need to rejoice in them. We need to tell them. We can rely upon the sovereign God of grace who is faithful to see his people through their trials. Notice in all those cases, God did not spare them from trials. God spared them in trials and through trials for the strengthening of their faith. When we look back on the lives of Bible heroes like King David or Jehoshaphat, let me say next chapter we get to Jehoshaphat. One of the reasons I'm preaching Chronicles is I want you to know and love Jehoshaphat the way that I do, but I'll stop right there. Uh, When you look at the lives of David or Jehoshaphat or or even Asa, in, in chapter after chapter, after episode after episode, the difference between their spiritual victories versus their spiritual failures was whether or not they relied upon the Lord. And those are always linked to prayer and the word of God. Always they go together. The same will be true. Do you realize that when your life is assessed, looking back on your life, perhaps after many, many years, the question will be, that the, the tale will be told, that the great moments will have been often under great stress and trial when you relied on the Lord and you were emboldened to serve him faithfully according to his will. You see, when we do that, our achievements, even our apparent failures, they will endure to the praise of God. But when we do not do that, when we rely on ourselves, on the latest fad, on our own skills, on the powers and principles of the world, whatever we achieve will not endure. Well, God had educated Asa himself in these things. That was the point of chapter 14. Why did God have a million Cushites and Libyans invade Judah so that Asa could see the power of God destroying them if he was not teaching this very thing? But how easily Asa had forgotten. Look at verse 8. Hanani exclaims, were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hands. Let me say to our deacons tonight, praise the Lord for you. Brothers, rely on the Lord. Let's do that together. Let's pray that we will do that together. Because he relied on the Syrian king in this occasion, Asa achieved his short-term success but he would suffer long-term consequences. And this works out in a number of ways. It's the natural way of things, but it's also God's chastisement. How does he suffer negative consequences here? Because he relied not on the Lord, but on the king of Syria. Well, first he is told in verse 7 that his rash self-reliance has forfeited a blessing that he did not know that God was intending to give him. Verse 7, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. I think we can imagine Asa going, I wasn't wasn't really at war with Syria. It never occurred to me. Well, God goes, it's not up to you to know what I'm going to do. You're to be faithful. You're to rely on me. And what happens is God is doing things that are greater than we ask or imagine, but he expects us to act in faith. It's a blessing he did not even anticipate, but God had ordained it upon the condition of his faith. Andrew Hill writes, God intended to grant Judah a victory over both Aram and Israel if he trusted God for deliverance. You see, it turns out that not only should not Asa have acted unbiblically, 
but he need not have done so. That is true for us as well. Not only should we not, this is true in our marriages, it's true in our parenting, it's true in our work relationships as students, it's true in the ministry of the church, in, in our public activities. Not only do we, should we not, must we not justify ungodly means because of supposedly good ends, we need not. Because God has a situation under control on condition of our faith. How often Christians experience the very thing that God was offering here when we do trust the Lord, when in a very costly way we rely upon him. And we hear stories, we pass these stories in the church, you've all heard them, I certainly have. A Christian loses a great job opportunity because he or she would not compromise on godly principles. They have to take a lesser job because they relied upon the Lord. And in that office place, they met someone who became a lifelong friend. Or maybe their spouse or or an opportunity that took them farther than they ever thought they would go because they trusted the Lord. They went down before they were taken up. How often that kind of thing. And we respond by saying, thank you, Lord. With just a little hindsight. Thank you, Lord, for working in ways that seemed mysterious to me at the time. But they turned out so wonderfully when I relied upon you. You see, if we give in to temptation, we might gain little. But how much do we lose? Now, the same is true for Christians who accept a calling to Christian service, maybe a calling to be a missionary in a far away place. Or maybe it's an over-busy man who gets ordained and installed to serve on the diaconate, to serve on the diaconate of his local church, to have his labors often be overlooked and unappreciated. And yet, see, by serving the Lord, relying on him, What blessings we receive. Our deacons experience a wonderful fellowship in the faith. They often have a front row seat to see God's power at work. And they have spiritual growth that compensates them abundantly for every sacrifice. So it is in all of our service to the Lord. Well, that was the first negative thing that happened because he didn't rely on the Lord. He lost an opportunity he didn't even know was there. Now, secondly, he did bring direct chastisement from the Lord. Verse 9, you have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Now, neither Chronicles nor Kings tells us about these wars that he endured, but I think we may be very sure that he did. It turns out he didn't get peace at all. His unprincipled success did not achieve anything. By the way, I think this judgment confirms the earlier dating for the events of this chapter because that leaves 20 or so years in which these wars would have recurred. He suffered chastisement because of his lack of reliance. Now, thirdly, Asa's failure to rely on the Lord, even while achieving such dramatic outward success, has the effect of lowering, of hurting, of damaging his own spiritual condition. That's what goes on here when he is so hard-hearted in response to Hanani's message. Look at verse 10. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. Now here, by the way, is the first, though by no means the last, instance of the persecution of prophets in Judah, for which Jesus would so severely condemn the nation. Well, we might easily conclude that Asa's actions from his failure to rely on the Lord to his persecution of the prophet, that it's all about pride. That may be the case, by the way, a hardened heart because of pride. If that's true, let's remember when we have success, not to ascribe those successes to our excellence, our virtue, our achievements. Let us humble ourselves and give all glory to God. It's actually where it really belongs And yet I wonder if that's the only thing going on here. Cyril Barber provides insight by suggesting more specifically that Judah's king seems to grow and have grown intolerant towards criticism. He's in a position of leadership. He's criticized. He's publicly criticized and humiliated. And Barber asks us to consider the situation from Asa's perspective. This unknown man appears. We presume he's unknown. There's no invitation. 
He comes, he doesn't give Asa any credit for all the things he's done. There's no talk about, remember the last chapter, heroically reforming the worship of Judah? None of that comes up. His previous faith and victories, none of that comes up. Asa's thinking about that. And probably, like most other leaders, pastors, elders, and deacons, he's already wearied by complaints and criticisms that increasingly he did not want to hear. Barber concludes, we cannot excuse Asa's anger though we can understand it. Anger is never without a reason, but the reason for it is seldom a good one. Anger is caused by feelings of frustration, humiliation, and rejection. Asa quite possibly felt frustrated when Hanani came before him and denounced what he had done without ever giving him the opportunity to explain. Well, Barbara's comments, I think, help us to have some sympathy for Asa. And yet we can never justify his violent response against a prophet of the Lord. He again reminds us all, but especially those not only who've been successful, but those who exercise authority and are accustomed to respect, to guard our spiritual condition. Lest by relying on the world we should do injury to our own faith. This reminds leaders in particular that however painful criticism criticism may be, and sometimes it seems constant, and so often it seems unwarranted, we must nonetheless be open-hearted to biblical critique, especially when it is offered with a good will. Now, Hanani's rebuke here does not sanction Christians who disrespectfully burden their leaders with criticism. After all, He's not a random Israelite. He is a prophet of the Lord. And yet, when those whose position in the church, and also those with a record of godliness and a godly support, when they come forward with biblical criticisms and concerns, a spiritually sound leader will listen to them, consult the word of God, and take heart. One of my most encouraging episodes of this occurred when I was an associate minister in On one occasion, my fellow associate minister came to me and said, both you and I believe that our senior minister, a very famous and powerful man in the church who was 60 years old, my current age, and he was now in an eminent position in the church, he said, I think that you agree with me that he's doing, it's a minor thing, it's actually how he, his unwillingness to fence the Lord's table. That was the issue. He didn't like fencing the Lord's table and he wouldn't do it. And he said, we need to go and confront him. So we young associate ministers to confront our August senior minister, we prayed, we were humble about how we did it, we scheduled a meeting, and we came before our senior minister and said, there's something we, we, we think that you're not doing biblically. I'll never forget how great it was to hear the words he said to us. Brothers, let's open God's word, pray together, and I will be happy to listen to what you have to say. Now, we were trusted men whose goodwill was known. But I was very impressed when after we went through the biblical teaching on it, he said to us, you are right, I am wrong. I will start obeying the word of God. I may be half-hearted for a while, so be praying for me that I would do it wholeheartedly. It's the spirit that we should have. And criticism, the defense of criticism, will lead us into a poor spirituality. Well, let me wrap this up. The final verses of chapter 16 take us forward to the final years of Asa's life. And we have in verse 11 the standard formula. The acts of Asa from first to last are written in the books of the kings of Judah and Israel. But what follows afterwards is not very pretty. We find that in the last few years of his life, verse 11, Asa was diseased in his feet and his disease became severe. Now, some scholars say it was gout. Gout can be very painfully severe. Others say gangrene. That that would be very bad. These are some of the suggestions. Another question is, what kind of trial is this? Is God chastising him, or is this another test of his faith? It seems from the text that it at least is another test of his faith. And if so, he does poorly. Verse 12 Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from the physicians. Now, please don't be quoting this verse as proof that Christians should never go to the doctor. Luke was a doctor. And uh, Paul tells Timothy, take a little medicine with some wine. That's what he says. The Bible's not against going to doctors. But what the Bible is against is a failure in distress, 
particularly when you're the king of Judah. It's very likely, at least, we're not told this, but this full element probably originates in the displeasure of the Lord. The Lord is the one he should seek. We always, uh, by all means, thank God for our medical professionals and the wonders that are done. The things that are being done in so many areas today are wonderful, but Christians must always seek the Lord. We must turn our face to God. We have, Psalm 121 should be on our lips. I lift up my eyes to the hills, but that's not where my help comes from. The high places of human expertise, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We must always seek the Lord. That's not what Asa did. Was it hard-heartedness, we wonder? I don't know. It might have been despair. Despair that a man like him who had failed and had not really resolved the former disobedience. He wonders, perhaps, if the Lord would be willing to receive him. Well, if that's what he's thinking, he should have consulted the Bible. He should have gone to Psalm 51, his own answer, David. Psalm 51 tells us if you find yourself in, in, in an extremity, in a trial, and you just feel there's no point in praying, particularly because you feel like you failed, and, and, there's no, and God is not going to bless you, listen to the words of David as he repents of his sin. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That's how we come to the Lord. It's never on our merits. If you find yourself distant from God and you've not been seeking him, seek him. Seek his mercy through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I often think of the wonderful words with which Micah 7 verse 18 celebrates how God answers and why God answers the plea of penitent believers who seek him. He says, God does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in showing mercy. Your God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, delights in showing mercy. In his parable of the prodigal son, Jesus showed that when a sinner repents, and turns to the Lord, the result is not some long, drawn-out process of restitution. No, it's an immediate reception into God's love. It doesn't mean that all of his problems go away immediately, but when we seek him and turn to him, repenting of our sin, calling upon his mercy, there's an immediate acceptance into the love of God the Father. For when the prodigal returned home, the Father commanded, bring quickly the best robe, Put it on him and put a ring on his hands. Put shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he is found. Luke fifteen twenty two to 24. Whether you have kept distance from the Lord out of a proud and hardened heart or by despair, the prophet's words to Asa, reminds you to come swiftly to God's grace, to confess your sins, to appeal to his mercy. Jesus said in Luke fifteen ten, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God in heaven over one sinner who repents. Well, after 41 years as king, Asa dies. We read that he slept with his fathers. He's buried in a tomb he had prepared at Jerusalem. That's a very good sign. He's identifying himself in death with the covenant promises of God. And the people honor him. They lie his body on a bier. He'd been their king for 41 years, and he is a champion king. And they perfume his body. They erect a memorial fire in his honor. That's not cremation. It's it's a bonfire to celebrate his legacy as their king. Asa died a believer even though his life had been scarred by spiritual failure. First Kings 5, 15, 11 leaves us no doubt. It says, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. This is a believer. You know what hope this gives to each of us who want to honor the Lord in our lives, yet often fail in the tests of faith. One last word to our deacons. Do not allow your service to Christ to become the basis of your acceptance with God and of his favor and his love. Do not appeal to your performance. It will often fail, at least sometimes it will. Appeal to the Lord Jesus Christ in his saving mediation, his intercession for you at the right hand of God the Father. Asa is accepted by God 
by grace alone, through faith, all because of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the true and better king who did not fail his test, but died on the cross for the forgiveness of everyone who believes. Well, the record of Asa's spiritual failures as part of a long life that in general was characterized by saving faith, let's not forget chapters 15 and 14, it leaves us with a word of encouragement when our time of testing comes. And that encouragement is concentrated in the great verse of this chapter, Second Chronicles 16.9, how well this would serve us to put it to memory. The prophet tells him, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, that he may give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. Now this imagery of the eyes of the Lord roaming throughout the world, it's an anthropomorphism. It's a human way of talking about what God does and how God is. It describes his sovereign knowledge of everything that is happening in the world, and especially those things that are causing anxiety to his beloved people, Things like Basha's fortress on Asa's border. It reminds us that God is sovereign over all things and that he knows the trials that you are facing. He heard the threats of your employer. He noticed the unjust edicts of your ungodly rulers. He reads your private fears and anxiety. And yes, his heart has lingered on the tears that you shed in private anguish. And God is there to support you when you turn to him in faith that he may give strong support to you. Now, the example of Asa reminds us that God is generally not not willing to, to support our acts of unbelief and worldly compromise. Why? Because that's not what he's cultivating in us. That is not the way of salvation and blessing. But my friends, when you feel alone, you feel all alone against despair, the powers of darkness, you are not alone. For the eyes of a loving God are with you to give you grace. He's longing for you to grow in your faith. He wants you to rely on him, to give you the grace that you need, and he will give it. I think the best application is a couple of brief verses from the Apostle Peter, or one verse, 1 Peter 5, verse 7. If this is so, if life involves painful tests of faith, fearful ones, but the eyes of the Lord are on us to give us the support that we need, Well, here then is what we should do. I'll conclude with this. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may lift you up. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Amen. Father, we thank you for this passage, all the things going on, and yet it connects directly to our lives. We need to rely upon you. And yet, Lord, we look at Asa and we see a fellow traveler because we are prone to a knee-jerk reaction exactly the way that he did. Father, have mercy on us, and you do. Instruct us by your word. Help us not to forget to pray, to consult your word. Give us hearts that are steadfast towards you because we know your loving eye is on us to strengthen us in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.